You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to episode number 38 of Self-Publishing Journeys for Monday the 21st of November 2016. My guest today is Kerry Fisher, who spent half of her life talking about writing a novel, then several years at Candice Magazine reviewing other people's books. It wasn't until she took some online courses with the University of California that the dreams started to morph into reality, culminating in the self-publishing of The Class Ceiling. The Avon imprint of HarperCollins picked it up and retitled it The Schoolgate Survival Guide, publishing it in summer 2014. Kerry's second book, The Island Escape, came out in May 2015. Her latest novel, After the Lie, was published by Bookature in April 2016. When I chatted to Kerry, I started by asking her what originally sparked her interest in writing. Well, originally I was a journalist. I worked for women's magazines, but I um, I was mainly covering real life stories and I found it very stressful and it made me a terrible journalist because I would end up saying to people, please don't say that because when you see it in print, your mum will be really up upset so obviously that does not for a good journalist make um and one of my jobs when I went freelance was reviewing books so I started you know I was reading probably 10 books a month and very naively I started thinking oh I think I could do this this looks quite easy and then I you know I could write about fictional people and I won't have to worry about upsetting real life people um I was absolutely ridiculously naive about how easy it would be to get published I imagine that it would be a question of finishing the book getting it out there to the agents and publishers and hey presto there'd be a book deal but clearly it's not quite as straightforward as that. Now we'll come back to the writing journey in a moment because I know that before all of that before your journalism career you were a bit of a, of a traveller as well I think weren't you? Yes, I was a terrible nomad, actually, much to my um, parents' dismay, really. Um, I did French and Italian at university and then took myself off to Spain for a couple of years to teach English. Um, then I was a holiday rep for a few years in, in Italy. Um, I just love languages and my kids get absolutely infuriated because every time they ask me something, I like to give the Spanish or the Italian or the Latin or whatever, but language just really appeals to me. And, it, you know, I feel very excited by it. Um, so I, I was looking for a job while I was out there um, that would lead me into working with words. And, you know, finally, at the grand old age of 50, I found one. <laughs> so you didn't uh, then have one of these early writing careers, you know, starting at, at eight or anything like that. You weren't really going to be a writer till much later in life. No, I, I was. Actually, I, I was very interested in being a linguist, um, you know, right from when I can remember, if we ever went on holiday to France or an, anywhere in Europe, I'd, I'd be absolutely fascinated by the language. Um, so I took French and Italian at university with the, with the idea that I would become a translator, um, but it didn't really appeal to me in the end. It was, it was too, um, what's the word? 
a bit methodical, really, I, 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 and, and too constrained. When you did your magazine work, do you think you learnt a bit about writing there? Is that where you learn a bit of craft? I definitely did. And the thing that I learned is don't sit down and wait to be inspired. I mean, one of the things, um, I did a degree in post-grad journalism at City University. And one of the things they taught me there, which is absolutely invaluable if you're a writer of any sort, was don't sit and wait to be inspired. Get the words on the page. Once you've got something down, you've You've got something to work with. Don't sit there struggling for the first perfect sentence. So, I mean, this is particularly applicable in journalism because you're working to much tighter deadlines. Um, but, I, I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I got there was when you're thinking about writing a story, imagine rushing into a bar and telling your friends what you're about to write about or what you've just seen, and that will give you the bare bones of, of the focus of your story. It's really interesting that you say that, Kerry, because I'm a journalist of 20 years. I worked for the BBC for 20 years. Number one, that's the, the advice I was given when you're writing news headlines. Imagine you're rushing mm -hmm. into a bar and it just and saying, you know, there's a fire down the street and people are, you know, being evacuated. You just tell them what the story is. Uh, mm -hmm. Just get on with it. Don't beat around the bush. Just tell the yeah. story. And the mm. other thing about journalists, you're not the first journalist I've spoken to again, but journalists don't seem to have the problem with procrastination and getting the first words down. No, I don't have the procrastination with that. Usually I find that procrastination hits me about halfway through a novel when I start to think either I could go in this direction or that direction, or worse, um, I'm not sure what direction I'm going in. And now I'm thinking, you know, I've bored myself. Am I going to be boring everybody else? Um, but I think my writing experience as a journalist has taught me that often that is just part of the process and to trust myself and know that I will find a way forward. You, you wrote the first book then, so you, you had the experience as, as a journalist. You thought that you were just going to um, take the literary market by storm. And <laughs> where did the first disappointment come? Did you send it round a bit to agents? Oh, um, did I send it round to agents? Um, so, I, I mean, I'm not. I wasn't quite as naive as as I sound because I because I actually had done some online writing courses, which we might come on to later. But um, initially, I sent it round to agents. But I sort of got to about ten and thought, oh, I, this isn't going to work. I'll just stop with that book and write another one because I was full of joy and enthusiasm and I loved writing. And um, I think with hindsight. I should have persevered with that book, perhaps sent it out to more agents and at least got some proper um, expert feedback on it. Uh, so that was, I mean, that was my first disappointment that, you know, there wasn't a queue of agents at, at the uh, at the door really for it. So were you getting any feedback at that stage, Kerry? Did you even get the basic feedback, like you're not wasting your time or anything like that? I did, actually. I I had, a, I had several people, and this was miraculous for my first novel because it didn't happen with the second novel I wrote. Um, I did have maybe three or four people ask for the full, which was great, you know. So I sent it out and I was all full of hope. And then, you know, the big disappointment when it comes back nearly, but not quite. Um, but 
I think because I had a little bit of personal feedback rather than just a standard rejection letter, it gave me the, the sort of motivation to keep going because a couple of them did say, this isn't for me, it's not quite right, but I'd be interested in seeing what you write next. Now, you mentioned the writing courses that you did, and on your blog, you've got the University of California. You and I met at the Festival of Writing in York, and you mentioned this in part of your presentation. <laughs> um, that seems quite an obscure place to go to learn about writing. Well, I mean, this this was probably, um, I mean, it, it was probably about 10 years ago now. And at the time, I hadn't heard, I, I don't think the Writers' Workshop was even going then. I'm, I'm not sure Harry might be able to correct me on that. But um, I happened to bump into another journalist on a press trip and she was, she she wanted to write a novel and it had always been a sort of long held dream of mine, but I didn't know how to go about it. And so we got talking and she mentioned the University of California that she had done some courses with. And that's how I ended up there. Um, you know, she recommended it, so I gave it a go. And I was absolutely terrified that I'd find out that the thing that I wanted to do most, all I would do was prove to myself I was utterly rubbish at it and stood no chance at all. And so how did that work? It was online, I take it. It was online. So it was in, say, um, so you signed up for 10 week courses, of which I did about eight in the end. Wow. Um, you start right at the bottom with novel writing basics and work your way up. And my first book, um, which is, out now as it wasn't published as this but it's called the Schoolgate survival guide um i wrote that solely in class so the benefit of that was that every week i had to write 10 pages so after a 10-week course already had 100 pages of a novel which is good motivation to keep pressing on to the next stage and i was also getting weekly feedback one from the instructor so that stopped me going down any silly blind alleys and two from other people in the class and that's really valuable in learning to um, put your work out there accept feedback or not accept it you know but it but you do have to get over that horrible feeling of oh I really don't want to show my work to anybody and have them criticize it and I mean you know once you get published lots of people are going to be looking at your work and giving you constructive feedback. So you really need to get over that sooner rather than later. And just to clarify the timeline, are we now with the University of California working on the second book after the first one got rejected? Yes, I did. I did both of uh, my, my first two books in so, uh, solely in class. I think it's, it's a bit hazy now because it was so long ago, but I certainly wrote the entire um, first manuscript in class us and certainly a good chunk of the second book as well so if people are thinking about getting started with writing do you, do you attribute doing those classes to the success that you've had in, in in the future years i think um when i learned the basics i didn't like a lot of people i naively set out and thought well i can write i'll just crack on with the novel but I really think it is absolutely essential to learn the basics, whether you do that in an online course or from um, uh, books or however you approach it. I think it's, uh, I mean, unless you're a genius, which I definitely wasn't, um, I think it was absolutely essential to learn um, plot structure, characters, how to deal with settings, timelines, all those things that, uh, unless you're, you know, you're very exceptional, 
I think you actually need to be taught and told. So having completed that course and the second book, what then did you do when that book was completed? Um, Well, I started sending out to agents again um, and I I had a little bit of good feedback but but certainly nobody rushing to take it on and send it out on submission to publishers um and i think actually overall i wrote three novels and when i got to the end of the third novel with no agent willing to take it on i simply did not have the stomach to sit down and write a fourth novel for another uncertain future so at that point then licking your wounds what where where did you move to next well, um, by this time, I, um, I, I was really thinking, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't for me, but, there, but I couldn't let it go. I, I really, I mean, actually, I probably would have been happier at that point if I had just, just said, well, I've given it a good shot, but this is obviously not the career for me. Um, but I, there was something in me that just desperately wanted it so much. Um, and my husband was starting to say things like, um, well, the National Trust are looking for shepherds and, uh, you know, trying to sort of direct me um, into other avenues. Um, and at that point, he, he, he just said, you know, why don't you self-publish? And this was back, I think, in 2011. And, and it was very uh, self-publishing wasn't how it is today. In five years, so much has changed and it's far more accessible um, and well thought of. But and I was still at the stage where I was thinking, I really want the validation of a traditional publisher paying money for my book. However small that amount of money that is, I want to be validated in that way. So I always I almost felt that I was it was a bit of a cop out. But actually, when I did self-publish, I had utter joy in my soul because I was in control. I didn't have anybody telling me what my story should look like to make it acceptable to the reading public. Um, And all of a sudden I had this great rush of um, enthusiasm come back to me that had been knocked out of me over, you know, probably three or four years of um, when I must have had, oh, I don't know, at least 120 rejections from agents overall. I mean, that, that's absolutely bruising. And one of the things, um, you and I met at your presentation at the Festival of Writing, and I think that um, so many people uh, get that knockback from the traditional system. And when you self-publish, I always say to people, you know, it should always be your best work, but it's a tremendous feeling getting to hold your book in your hand, uh, even if it's a self-published book. And you must have felt that, I assume. I, I felt absolutely overjoyed um, having had, you know, several years of endless rejections, even though they were getting better and, you know, um, you know, they were a bit more positive. At the end of the day, it's still a rejection. So as soon as I got my book up on Amazon and people that I didn't know were starting to buy it and leave positive reviews, it was just massively energizing. Uh, and I felt absolutely thrilled. I, you know, I, I loved it. In fact, I, I got completely obsessed with, you know, looking at my sales figures, which weren't huge or anything. But you know, even ten copies was felt like a 
brilliant. Um, and I, I just found the whole process really exciting. And it's empowering too, isn't it? Because, you know, you were going, I say you were going nowhere. I mean, there was no movement forward, was there? It was just constant rejection <laughs> before. At least that's empowering and you've done something at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, of course, I started started to take a real interest in the business side of writing. And this is something that I think is very often overlooked, that there's sort of a a myth really that writers are people who sit around waiting to find the muse and, um, and, and are not business savvy. But to be successful, especially in self publishing, because you are doing it all yourself, you do need to understand how books sell and how the market works. So what did self-publishing look like in 2011? I'm guessing it's not as straightforward and easy as it is now. Well, I mean, there were instructions on Kindle um, KDP about how how to literally upload a book. Um, And I'm not, as you saw earlier on, I'm I'm not at all technically savvy, but but I managed to do it. It took me it took me a long time, but then I am an absolute perfectionist. So, um, you know, I wanted to read it on all the different platforms just to check there weren't any um, formatting mistakes. And I did pay to get a, a cover professionally designed because I think that is the one thing that you absolutely cannot afford to skimp on. I still saw it as something that I wanted to be absolutely proud of. How, how, Whatever turns my career took, I didn't want to look back on that cover and think, oh, my life, that looks like something that I knocked up in a back bedroom. And that's well, that's an important point, isn't it? Because a lot of people think of self-publishing as as a second best option in some way. And I always say to people, it should be your very best work that you can put out there. And, and then that's fine. Uh, I think that's OK, isn't it? Yeah, Oh, absolutely. In fact, I had some really good advice from a tremendously successful self-publisher called Tally Rowland. Again, this was at the Festival of Writing in York. Um, And she said, don't self-publish because your work is not good enough to be traditionally published. And I think that's a really, really good piece of advice. So I was, well, I was as sure as I could be that I had done my best work by that I meant that I'd been through it for typos it had been I'd edited it within in within an inch of its life um it you know it wasn't a genius story but I was pretty confident that it was well done well structured and as near perfect as I could make it so that I believe was then called the class ceiling your first self-published book have I got that right right. yes that's right so what what then happened to that? Because this led you to a traditional publishing contract. Yes, it did. I um, well, I, I was I was just for several months. I was just enjoying the the thrill of finally having a book out there, getting feedback and reviews from readers. Um, and then at, at an, an, an event, it was the Romantic Novelists Association. They have a couple of um, parties a year and there are lots of editors and agents there. I just happened to be speaking to an editor who um, had commissioned an author who writes a little bit like me. And afterwards, I just thought, I'm just going to approach her directly with uh, with my, my novel, The Class Ceiling. Um, and I sent it to her She and she really liked it. I just approached her directly and said, that, you know, I, I think at that time I had a 
about 45 five-star reviews and I had some good feedback on Twitter and I just included a couple of little clips from the reviews and from Twitter and, and put that in my covering letter. I lit, I was not expecting anything at all. I was just thinking, well, it's just one more stamp wasted after hundreds of other stamps, but it's worth a try. Um, and she, she came back straight away and she said, I like it, send me the rest, send me your next book. What was the difference here, Carrie? Because before you were um you know you were sending a script now i guess you've got some you've got some feedback you've got some testimonials you've got some customers looking at the book do you think that swung it in your favor Hmm. that's a really good question i think two things i think testimonials are really fantastic you know because that because i had more than 50 I mean, probably most people could get 15 friends and family to to write a review. But once you start getting beyond, I think you can tell from the reviews that they're people who don't know you, that are just, you know, um, your average reader picking up books, if you like. Um, So I think the testimonials were really important. But I also think I didn't, oddly, I didn't care as much. Um, So I was way more confident about pitching my book because I was thinking well I'm loving self-publishing anyway I'm actually doing quite well at it and this would just be a bonus and I think somehow that changed the dynamic who knows now that's very interesting isn't it because usually the dynamic between an agent stroke publisher and a writer is is, is please sir or please madam you know please will you take my book it's it's almost apologetic and and waiting for the approval but it sounds to me like you were quite gung-ho about that kind of well almost take it or leave it dare I say yeah I, I was because partly because I had absolutely no expectations that a publisher like HarperCollins would take my book on after it being rejected by lots of um, lots of agents and not even getting past the first post. So um, it was a bit of a cheeky punt, really. Um, but I mean, this is the thing that I come back to a lot when I'm talking to people who want to get published is if a door looks like it might open for you for goodness sake push on it you know just keep pushing on those doors until you get to the place that you want to be in so that said you got uh, you got your bite you got your traditional publishing deal how then did that make you feel about all the rejection that you'd had beforehand did it make you view that rejection in a different way less personally almost um i think it reiterated to me that um the whole of the publishing world is very subjective and also i'm talking about the traditional publishing world here um is very also very risk adverse so i think once i had proved that i had a market for that book then they viewed me more favorably i think in terms of thinking about whether rejections are personal I mean, they're not actually personal. They feel very personal, but they're not personal. They are simply another business person looking in its most basic form at whether they can make money out of you. Yeah, I always say it's like Dragon's Den. They're they're deciding whether to bat you. Yes. Um, And they've got to, you know, agents don't get paid unless you get a book deal. So obviously, they are only going to take on people that they really think they can sell. 
So you were self-publishing. You've now got a bite. How did we get that then into the shops and into Harper Collins? What was that like? Well, that was that was an interesting journey, really, because I, um, although the editor said I'm very, very interested in your book and send me your next one. There, there's a whole acquisitions process to go through in the big publishing companies. Um, and so that was probably about June. And she kept emailing me and saying, I know you haven't heard from me, but it doesn't mean that it's not good news. It's just that there are still a few more hurdles to go through. Um, in the meantime, I was just enjoying myself publishing. And I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't sit there sometimes and think, please let HarperCollins take me on, you know. But I was still joyful in what I was doing. I was managing to enjoy the moment. And then um, what I did do was send letters out to agents saying, HarperCollins are currently considering my manuscript. I might need some help um, and some representation if it progresses. And chose the five agents that I like the look of most. And um, immediately, you know, the complete contrast with my earlier experience, they were very much like, brilliant, send me the full manuscript straight away. So I did manage to start getting a lot of agent interest. And on the, the first agent that I went to see was my now agent, Claire Wallace at Darley Anderson. Um, we had a very frank and good conversation and I was very cool, I mean, probably ridiculously so, and said, well, there are other people considering the manuscript. Um, can we talk later when I've I've heard what everybody else has to say? And then when I got home that evening, there was a, a two-book deal in my inbox from HarperCollins. So weirdly, after five years, I got an agent and a book deal in the same day, and I've made that sound ridiculously easy, but it was just I. I I don't know. Everything suddenly fell into place on the same day. I, I simply don't know how that happened. It's very interesting to me, though, how how it how it suddenly flips. And, and, you know, rather than you running to them with cap in hand, all of a sudden they're they're coming to you. Do you think part of that is is perception and that and that sort of being further in front of the queue just because you've made more progress, self-publishing, you know, getting bites? Is it just inch by inch by inch? Is that how it works? I think so. I think it. I think it's a very long game, and I also don't think that that stops once you, even if you do get a traditional publishing deal. I think publishing is an inch by inch type of game. You know, you get a publishing deal, then you want to get, you know, into the top ten or the top hundred in the Kindle charts, and you know, maybe your first book doesn't manage that, maybe your second one does. It never stops. There's just a different mountain summit to reach. <laughs> how, how, how did it feel um, having self-published and had that empowering experience then to have Harper Collins? I think you were with Avon, weren't you? The, the, the yeah. Avon imprint to then want to retitle your book and then presumably get their paw prints all over it. Interestingly, I'm I'm not very precious about that sort of thing. I basically I felt that I'd produced the best book that I possibly could within what was available to me as a self-publisher. I had to believe that a global company would be better at finding a cover and a title um, than I would sitting at my kitchen table at home. Um, and, and that is the attitude I take. You are the book experts. 
I'm going to tell you what I think about things. But in the end, your job is to get that part right. My job is to write the book. Did they give it an edit before it, uh, they, they took it on? It was a very light edit, actually, um, which was which was incredibly flattering. Um, they uh, the second book they they took on that had a that had more a uh, much bigger edit, but the, but the first book that I self published had a very light edit. So I was you know I felt that that was a real validation that I'd actually done a decent job. One of the things I, I didn't ask you about the class ceiling version of the book was: Did you create a physical version, or was it Kindle only at that stage? I was just about to create a physical version of it, although I do have a couple of um, my brother's actually a printer. So he did print me a couple of special copies. But um, I was just about to print, um, make a physical version of it when HarperCollins started to be interested. And I did ask them and they said, hold off on that for the time being until we've made a decision. So I never got that far. So uh, I've got to ask you then, how was it then to hold your book for the first time and have it published by HarperCollins? It must have been a a fantastic experience. Do you know what? I think one of the best days of my life, I actually went to um, Suffolk to Clay's printers to see them coming off the presses. Um, And I took my old dad with me who used to be a printer and it was just fantastic. I mean, I literally, I, I mean, there aren't, I think as you get older, sadly, you don't get absolutely thrilled and excited but because you've got so much experience of life. But on that day, I could not have been happier. It was just brilliant. Wow, that sounds great. And, and so from there, um, that they market it and give it a push, presumably, and the sales start to come in. Do you get, to, do you yes. get the same sensation of the sales being made that you did when you were self-published? Bizarrely, um, it feels you feel more remote from it. When when I self-published, I knew that everything that was out there and everything that a reader was looking at was purely down to me. That the responsibility for getting it right stopped with me. Um, I didn't feel as I mean, I, it was fantastic to see the books coming off the off the presses, and I don't want to um, denigrate that ex- that experience at all. It was wonderful to see the books actually physically in the bookshop, but I did feel a bit removed from the sales because it wasn't me doing the marketing for it. Um, it it was a bit more like, well, that you know, over to you. And then how quickly did the books get traction and then you started to get excited about the sales figures and the performance? I mean, I did. I was very excited. I mean, any sales feel amazing because um, it's, you know, it's been such a long journey that it was fantastic to see how those those the books actually do when they get out to a, a wider readership. Um what was very exciting was my second book, The Island Escape, got to number two in the Kindle charts. And seeing that sort of hit the top 100 and then get to 50 and then start thinking, oh, my life, this could actually get into the top 10, which was just beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, it does lead to um, obsessive Kindle ranking checking. Um, but 
I mean, that was really exciting. Um, and E.L. James was at the top with, with Grey, uh, or uh, it might have been Fifty Shades of Grey. But anyway, one of her books. So I knew I would never, never knock her off the top slot. But um, it was very exciting to get that far up the charts. That's an amazing achievement. C- congratulations on that. It must have been so exciting. And that second book, um, you, you've already hinted at, was a little bit more problematical in terms of the edits. What, what's that process like when, when you know, the publisher comes back and says, uh, you know, could do better, effectively? Um, to be honest, I really liked my editor and absolutely trusted her judgment. And because of that, I just had a sense of... Um, working together to write the best book I possibly could. And I think in some ways, uh, not that I'm making out that I'm super mature or anything, but I think it does take a level of maturity at some point to realise that people making um, suggestions or giving you feedback about your book, they're, they're not criticisms for the sake of it, they're actually constructive pointers to make sure that when that book goes out into the world, it's the best it possibly can be. And I stand by that. I'm very open, you know, and, and often now when I'm working with my editors, I will flag up when I send the manuscript in. These are my areas of concern. Can you just have a look at them and check that you think I have made this convincing and credible? When I look at your Amazon author page, we have the books uh, Ein Wunderbarer Sommer and Die Liebe des Glück und Ein Todesfall. Um, so you've been published in foreign languages as well, although you yeah. know it from the way I pronounce them. Um, so how, what's that experience like? When did that come in? Well, the um, so they're, they're the, the two that you've mentioned there are the German editions. Um, I've, I've also been published in Brazil and, um, and in the States. And um, the German one was really exciting because, to be honest, I didn't even realise that, I mean, this is so naive, but I didn't realise that foreign rights could or would be sold when I first signed with my agent. And then she was like, of course, we're taking it to, you know, your debut off to the Frankfurt uh, Book Fair in October. And, um, and she phoned me from there and said, I think initially there were four or or five publishers interested and those two books went to auction and again that was incredibly exciting I didn't even know these things could happen um so yes that was that was amazing um and in some ways when so when the German editions went out I I don't feel that I I can do anything to affect those sales so it's quite relaxing it doesn't feel the same as when a book comes out in the UK because I you know I can't affect what happens in Germany so it you know I I just have to trust that the publishers know what they're doing and do you sell better in any of those countries than you do in the UK I don't I don't know for Germany the the island escape that came out um so that that was the book that got to number two over here that came out in um the states this summer um and that has done really well I don't know whether it did better than it did in the UK in the in the same time period, but um, it, it was it was interesting how you know, and this is credit to Bookature really that nobody's heard of me in the states. You know, I haven't got a readership there at all, um, and they managed to get it into the top hundred in the Kindle charts. 
Now, let's talk about Bookature, because when we were at the Festival of Writing this year in York, they were very much the, the buzzword. They were the new kid on the block, and they're doing things slightly, di- uh, di- well, differently and digitally, is what I'm trying to say. Now, <laughs> you mentioned the island escape with Bookature. I, I thought that your third book was the one that had gone with Bookature. So can you explain where they came along and how they fit in? Okay, so um, After the Lie was my third book, which which went to Bookature. The Island Escape, they took the US rights to the Island Escape. Um, HarperCollins uh, had the UK and Commonwealth rights. So um, my agent sold the US rights to Bookature. So that's how that's how the Island Escape came to be published in, in the US. Um, after the lie, I mean, basically, Bookature are the new kids on the block, as you rightly say, and they're very, very good for authors. I think they treat authors extremely well and are quite fair about the royalties. And I'm not giving away any trade secrets because it's on their website. They pay 45% royalties for ebooks, and I think it's, you know, it's roughly with the traditional publishers around 25 percent so for authors that does represent a significant extra chunk of money what is it that bookature does that is different then from the traditional publishers um i mean basically they are extremely good at marketing and um, i'm not speaking specifically about harper collins here i'm i'm speaking generally um there is it's really important to, once you've written a good book and got a good cover and a good blurb and a good reader description that you know that readers are aware that your book is out there and one of the things that bookature do extremely well is they use very good facebook advertising and they have they have an extremely good pr woman kim nash i don't know whether you've come across her she's very very good and i th- i think with traditional publishers the bigger names get more of the marketing budget because they're more of a safe bet than an unknown debut author. At Bookature, they, I think one of their USPs really is that they give the same amount of time and energy and money to all their authors, regardless of whether you're the Angie Marston that's selling a million books a year or, you know, an unknown that they've just taken on but can see the potential in. And it strikes me that you've almost come full circle. Bookature is not, not quite traditional. It's not quite self-publishing, but it, in many ways it embodies some of the, the, the speed of self-publishing and the dynamics, because I remember at your presentation you told us that the cover wasn't working on After the Lion. They they changed it in response to just market feedback, I guess, which I, I think is yeah. really interesting. I think it's brilliant, actually, because they do, and they are monitoring all these things. Obviously, because they're a digital-only imprint, it's much easier for them to move quickly than when you've had 20,000 copies um, printed and you realise, you know, a bit further, down the line that that's perhaps not quite right so i mean you know they, they do have the fact that they're a digital imprint on on their side however they do do it so well they monitor every tiny part of the process um and i just think they're amazing now and um, i'm very interested then because presumably we don't now have well, they, they do have physical copies i remember you telling this in the presentation but they're they're done through create space the way that i would do mine for instance yeah 
Yes, print on demand. Yeah. But then, so they're not in shops and supermarkets. Is that is that the case? Yes, I mean. Um, um, Angie Marsons, who's done brilliantly well with her series, um, she Bookture have negotiated a print deal specifically for her. But um, generally speaking, it's a digital only ebook only imprint, uh, and which are more profitable, of course, and, and as you say, faster to to market. So, do you still have an agent then when you work with Bookature? Yes, I do. Um, not everybody has agents for Bookature. Um, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I get the sense, and this is not a, um, you know, scientific, that it's probably about half and half. That doesn't mean that your foreign rights won't be sold um, if you don't have an agent. They they use their own agent to sell foreign rights abroad. Um, I personally like like having somebody I can be absolutely honest with, I completely trust my agent and I completely trust her judgment. So if something's not working, I can phone her up, have a brainstorm with her, brainstorm ideas for new novels, all that sort of thing. And that to me is invaluable. So I'm quite happy for her to earn her commission on my work because I would be far more insane if I didn't have her on my side. And then with Bookature, are you going through the same uh, process that you might do with a traditional publisher, i.e. are you having to go through all the structural edits and all of that process? Oh, absolutely. The process is exactly the same. Um, and, and actually, they spend an awful lot of time on it. They, they have, they're very stringent. So you, you might have more than one round of structural edits, more, more than one round of line edits, go, still goes off to a copy editor, to a proofreader. So all the things things you would get with the traditional publisher is you you're still getting with bookature i think it's quite exceptional that um, somebody like bookature um i'm going back to your cover again here should say oh i think we got that wrong let's try something different is it you know that mindset's very different isn't it i think it's personally i really think it's the way forward um i i think being open-minded and and monitoring the market to such a degree that you can identify which part of a book is not working. I I just think it's really exceptional. So is this you now saying the future for you is digital? I'm certainly very happy where I am, for sure. Um, and, and it was interesting because... You know, I've thought about self-publishing because there's there is a sense that with any publishing company, you're giving a large chunk of your money to them. But in my mind, Bookature definitely, definitely earn their cut of it. Um, and they make books, you know, much more of a success than I possibly could um, within my own limits sitting at my kitchen table. Well, I'm going to keep plugging away to get that interview because I, I really want to talk to them about that process. So, something I do want to talk to you about is the Festival of Writing in York, because I'm constantly bigging this up on the podcast and saying, you know, whether you're whether you're traditional or indie, go to it because it's really great. Um, how did you get involved with the Festival of Writing? Because I think you've been there as an attendee and now you're doing courses. Yeah, I, I went there for three years as an attendee um, and I loved it because I love the buzz of about it. I find it really inspiring. I think they have quite high quality workshops. So you, you feel that you're you're learning all the time when you're there. I mean, it's an exhausting weekend because you're taking on board so much information. But I, I, I just 
just think it's, I mean, I went to lots of uh, festivals because my husband kept saying to me, you won't sell your book sitting at the kitchen table, get out and about. So I did do that. And by by far, that was the best festival that I went to in terms of um, the, the quality of, of the teaching, um, the friendliness, you know, because it is a bit daunting to go to a festival for the first time. And they have a number of competitions there. And you have won first prize at the festival for the opening line. I was wearing the wrong bra for sitting in a police cell, which is just, <laughs> it's just a great first line. Um <laughs> That, yeah, that's the opening line to the island escape, which that back then was called the divorce domino. <laughs> it's really, uh, it's a really good uh, line. How important is that, though, to get that first line right? Because those competitions are actually quite a valuable learning tool, I find. Yeah, I think it. I think it's really essential. I mean, not just your first line, but the whole of your first page. You've got when when you think that agents. Were, were saying at the festival that they get 80 submissions and upwards a week and they probably only dedicate you know maybe two three hours to looking through them if that first line and first page doesn't immediately hook them in um you know you're, you're going to find it an up, uphill struggle yeah absolutely um your course was great by the way at the, at the festival of writing in york thank you very much for that and and it was great um because you were all about getting it done empowering people you know telling them how to get over the hurdles how, how important is that message for people if you take yourself back to when you were struggling and getting the rejections how important is it to communicate that that it can can be done i think you know it's it's very easy to feel when you're getting lots of rejections that if you only had a parent who was an author or you had some publishing connections you you know you could make it happen but the truth is well in my view persistence is equally important as talent um and one of the ways you can help yourself is being prepared to hear your feedback um i think it's human nature to just to not want to accept anything other than this manuscript is complete genius. Um, but, you know, you're, it's going to be, you need to be learning all the time. I'm still learning. And, you know, I make no secret of this. Sometimes I get stuck when I'm writing now and go back to a book called Beginnings, Middle and Ends. Um, and, you know, you, you don't, you mustn't be proud about feeling that you still need to be learning, but you do need to persevere. If you believe that you can write and that your manuscript is, um, is good enough, it will eventually find a home, but you mustn't give up. And what are you working on at the moment? Are we, are we working on number four now? Um, no, I've just handed in number four. Hurrah. Oh, <laughs> That's just gone off to copy editing. Um, and I'm just sitting here working out which of the two ideas I want to tackle next. And who determines that timeline for you nowadays? Now you're with Bookature. Do you, do you kind of release when you want or how does that work? Has it changed anything? No, um, I still still get a contract with a deadline. Um, I mean, mutually agreed um, where possible. But in the end, you know, in the end, Bookature is a business um, and they need their authors to be producing books and they've got something to sell. So and, and actually, I prefer to have a deadline because otherwise it's very easy to find other things to do. What is it? How long does it take you to write a book? On I, average? I wrote my last in six months, which was the 
the shortest amount of time. That was very tight for me. I it felt like I was really under a lot of a lot of pressure. I think I I would prefer to write in nine months. Um, I'm I'm a slow and careful writer. I'm not somebody who writes um, a very quick first draft and then goes back to correct it. I I write quite slowly but methodically. Where can we find out more about you online, Kerry? What are the best places to go? Um, I like Facebook. Um, so I have an author page, which is just Kerry Fisher Author. If you look for that, you'll find me. Um, I, I'm on Twitter. Um, Kerry F. Swain, which is S-W-A-Y-N-E. Um, and I also have a web page, which is kerryfisherauthor.com. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week. <laughs>